1: Welcome once again to Signals to Danger, the 52nd episode of the podcast which explores the history of our nation's railways and its darkest days. My name is Dan Fox, the producer of Signals to Danger and also a full time employee within a UK train operating company. As I always do, I'll take a very quick moment to thank those who support the podcast either on Patreon or with donations or purchasing merchandise, and to remind you that if you do subscribe through the Patreon platform, There is a way that you can listen to episodes ad-free. Production schedule has slipped a little over the last month, and my apologies for this, but as you're aware, this, as much as I love it, isn't my day job. And in fact, I've been learning a new day job over the last two months, so I am indeed sorry for keeping you waiting a little while longer than normal, but you are here, listening now, which means that you must be aware that we're back for yet another episode. And this time round, we're talking about Hickson. Morning and caught fire. I could feel the heat coming through windows, and all the windows I could see were just orange like, like the sun. Thirty-six die in a South London train crash. Some who survived that were killed when a third train hit the wreckage. This was, in the words of the coroner, a unique set of circumstances that have resulted in catastrophic consequences. The level crossing, it is a major part of the history of the railway and really is a simple concept in its most basic form. Where roads and rails meet on flat terrain, there are several options for how this intersection can be tackled. Some are expensive and some are cheaper. The most cost-effective, the one that solves the problem with the best value for money is the level crossing. All of the other options involve some expensive engineering if you want them to cross in a completely separated manner. Bridges require either a cutting to be dug out underneath the line for the road, or for an embankment to be built up either side for the roads to rise up and out of the way of the railway. Tunnels are essentially the same issue, with much more engineering involved, and quite frankly, they're rarely worth the cost to pass underneath even four tracks of a main line. No, The level crossing is in fact the simplest and cheapest way to undertake these crossings and over the years of the railway's expansion they spread and spread almost as quickly as the railway itself. While it feels inherently dangerous to bring road and rail together we know from our own experiences that these are rarely, I won't say never, but rarely left completely open and unobstructed. In fact, as far back as 1845, the Railway Clauses Consolidation Act, another catchy title for this podcast, required that these crossings should always be manned and gated, and that these gates would normally be closed against the road, keeping the railway segregated and fenced off from those poor innocents on the highway who might stumble into a dangerous place. And actually, this does seem sensible for two reasons. Firstly, trains are far harder to stop for all of the reasons that we've previously discussed on this podcast, including their incredibly high weights and the low friction between rails and wheels, just to name two examples. And actually, because in 1845, private car use wasn't exactly the concern that it is today. There was a provision within this act though, that the default opening to the rails could be changed at each crossing where required and for very obvious reasons over the intervening period, crossing by crossing this was issued for nearly every busy level crossing where the gates were interlocked with protecting railway signals. This meant that it was done in such a way that the signals could only be set for clear for trains after the gates had been shut against the road. Not every crossing had this protection, however, but by 1966 of around 2,500 crossings, just over 500 weren't interlocked with the signalling system. There was, however, an issue with the status quo as it stood at that time. Even though roads would be the default setting of these crossings, the existence of them was still having a substantial impact on the flow of road travel. They were required to be operated by a signalman or a crossing keeper, and it was quite a substantial process when trains did approach. They had to close the road gates to the traffic, set the signals for the train, and then send bell signals to the box in advance of his to accept that train. All of this had to be done prior to the train reaching the distance where it could safely be stopped before the crossing. And understandably, this was leading to traffic being stopped between five and ten minutes every time a train passed. Doing the maths in your head, this doesn't take long to add up on lines where more than one train passed an hour in each direction. Following the Second World War, road traffic had vastly increased and the impact that crossings were having was ramping up in turn. There was an increased pressure on the railway to look at how this time, where the road was unavailable because of the trains, how could that be reduced? And that wasn't the only issue. As we hear about all too often on this podcast, money came into the equation as well. Employment law and other societal changes meant that the busiest crossings were now requiring three shifts a day to man, and at some of them, this was equating to a cost of around £3,000 a year. Which doesn't really sound like a big amount of money, but bear in mind that in 1956, this was the equivalent of nearly £100,000, and then multiply that by the number of crossings which required that amount of manning, and then... Smaller amounts, but still significant amounts for all those crossings that didn't quite have to have that many shifts. It was certainly worth British Railways, and the industry in fact, doing some investigations as to how to reduce that cost button. And the investigations did indeed take place, with a key aspect of them taking the form of somewhat of a field trip. A joint working party, comprising of and led by members of the Rail Inspectorate, was to visit France, Holland and Belgium to go and observe the relatively new addition to their respective railways, Automatic Half Barrier Crossings, or as we know them nowadays, AHBCs. The AHB consists of barriers and lights, but the barrier only covers the entry lane on each side of the road and not the exit lane. There are no gates which swing across the rails themselves, Completely novel to the UK, but at the time of the working party's trip, over 700 had been installed in France and 39 in Holland. Specifically, one of the benefits was the lack of a requirement for a crossing keeper to operate these installations, and with the barriers being lowered by systems which worked without the need for input from a human operator. In France, automatic half-barriers at unmanned crossings had been introduced in 1955 on lines with no more than two tracks, and at sites where they were traffic conditions which allowed for their use, and approaching trains were in view for more than 12 seconds. They weren't interlocked with railway signals, so trains weren't held by a red signal until the crossing was fully closed. They were completely independent of the signalling system. On the return from their fact-finding mission, the Inspectorate published a report which stated that there was a necessity for a fundamental change in outlook as to the purpose of protection at level crossings. The type of heavy wooden gate which had been in use for over a hundred years was intended to be, and in fact was, a completely effective obstacle to the horse-drawn road vehicle. The situation has changed with the advent of the modern powered road vehicle which can easily break through such a gate, and its value therefore as an obstacle to vehicle movement when closed against the road lies primarily in its conspicuousness. This characteristic can be fully achieved with a barrier of suitable construction, especially when it is equipped with modern reflecting material. The barrier can be of light construction, and as it is mechanically more efficient than the gate, it can be opened more easily and more quickly. The report went on to say that with the introduction of lifting barriers at level crossings, and in particular if automatic half barriers are to be adopted, The principle must be recognised that it is the responsibility of the individual to protect himself from the hazards of the railway, in the same way as from the hazards of the road. The automatic half-barrier equipment, which has been developed in recent years on the continent, has undoubtedly been successful. We believe that this type of protection, which has also been in use in the USA for some years, will prove to be safe in this country. This decision, this report, it led to a change wherein the UK rail industry began to adopt AHB crossings, initially at lesser used remote locations and then gradually increasing in prevalence. By 1963, these were acceptable in rural areas where there was road traffic not exceeding 150 vehicles per hour in each direction, and that neither the speed nor the frequency of trains should be a limiting factor, provided that the difference in time between the fastest and slowest train reaching the crossing after the warning should not be more than 40 seconds and that road traffic could clear readily between train movements, which was a really wordy section of the podcast where I have recounted some extracts to you from a report, um, but let's take a slight detour to be more kin with how we normally do things and talk about how these crossings actually work. We've used the word automatic quite a lot, but what does that actually entail? Well, the descent of the barriers, that's initiated by an approaching train. At a distance 24 seconds away, based on the fastest trains, it strikes a treadle. This is a switch that's operated by the passage of the train's wheels. And at the same time, it also completes at some locations an electric circuit through the rails, like a track circuit. At that point, two sets of twin red lights at each side of the crossing flash and an alarm bell rings for eight seconds. And that point, the half barriers begin to descend. It takes them another eight seconds to reach the horizontal and be blocking the road, and then eight seconds after that, the train arrives on the crossing. So, set up in that way, the system of automatic protection at automatic crossings allows road traffic no more than 24 seconds warning before the fastest train will be upon it. But that time frame was deemed as being sufficient by those in charge of making the decisions. By 1968, British Rail BR had 207 crossings automatically operated in this way, reliant on the movement of trains to activate them with no interlocking of signals. One of these was located on New Road, just to the west of the village of Hickson. Rail is by far the most efficient way of transporting heavy goods, but there is a limitation as to what can be reasonably carried. Loading gauge doesn't allow everything to fit under bridges, through tunnels, or even alongside other trains, passing wagons, carrying the oversized loads. Road transport has a very real role to fill in the terms of fulfilling those needs of oversized transportation even nowadays, and it was as true in 1968 as it is now. For this reason, today's story will not start with describing the make-up and journey of a train, but rather a road vehicle, specifically one designed to transport one of these oversized loads. Owned by Hauliers Robert Wynn & Sons, the vehicle in question was nothing short of a beast. The main component of this contraption was a strengthened 32-wheel trailer, which had two banks of sixteen wheels arranged on bogies. Slung between these bogies was a platform hanging down low close to the road level on two swan neck connections, so they came up from the ends of the trailer and out over to the centre of the bogies where it was carried between them. The trailer actually had a cabin to its rear, which allowed the steering on the trailer to be controlled by a steersman. Of course, it is only a trailer, and so it must be moved by the means of something else. Quite often on these oversized loads, that power comes from both ends, and in this case, it was no different. To both the front and rear of the trailer was a tractor unit, a lorry cab, essentially, and these two worked in tandem to both drag and propel the vehicle forwards, and collectively, this sort of arrangement was referred to at the time as a juggernaut. And at 8.15 in the morning, on Saturday the 6th of January 1986, this particular juggernaut was sat outside English Electrics Works in Stafford, about to set out along a journey, its destination being an English Electrics depot, located at a disused airfield next to the village of Hickson. While the distance in As the Crow Flies was only around six miles, The nature of this load meant that the route would be circuitous, heading first south out of Stafford, then north on the M6 motorway, then along the A34 as far as Stone, before heading south again along the A51 to Hickson. It was going to take substantially longer than a direct journey, but it was fairly unnegotiable considering the size and weight of the load, and at quarter past eight, the crew of the transport were ready to depart. And crew is the right word as well, there was five people involved in the task. Two drove the tractors, one steered the trailer, and a further two were available to assist and spot against obstacles if required. In charge was Mr. Groves, the driver of the lead tractor. The rear tractor was driven by Mr. Illsley, and the trailer housed Mr. Wilkins, the steersman. Such a large and complicated load was required to be escorted by the police, and this was the case on the day of the incident with the two constables, Prince and Nichols, inside a patrol car, which was to lead the convoy. At around 9.30 in the morning, the convoy departed from the works and set out on the route which was pre-planned and for which the hauliers had needed to request authorisation for. Along the way, police controlled traffic to allow the transformer to negotiate corners and did what was required to clear traffic on the route ahead of the oversized load. This was particularly important when the transporter had to move into the middle of the carriageway for bridges and when it was required to be the only vehicle passing over structures. Slowly but surely, the convoy made its way along the route without incident, and by time lunchtime was creeping close on the clock, it had almost made its way to its end point of its journey, moving down the A51 before the turn into Station Road, which is what New Road was known as at the time, the road leading into Hickson. At the same time, as this transit was in progress, another heavy and long vehicle was also starting its journey, although this one was a bit more in keeping with the subject matter of this podcast. One Alpha 4-1 weighed in at 491 tonnes itself and consisted of 12 carriages being hauled by an AL-1, which is one of the first types of AC electric locomotives which BR had introduced and for those who like numbers, it was E3009 to be precise. The type was later known as a Class 81, following the change to TOPS, um, the, the British Rail computer system for keeping track of locos and vehicles, etc. The carriages behind the loco were a mixture of BR Mark 1 and Mark 2 carriages, and between them all, they were carrying 300 passengers. At 11.30 in the morning, Alpha 4-1 departed from manchester Piccadilly Station, although the station itself had only had that name for eight years, previously known as London Road, and commenced its journey south. In the cab was driver Atkinson and his second man, fireman Hockenhall. The first leg of the journey took them as far south as Stoke-on-Trent, and at this point, the crew of the train changed up somewhat. Hockenhall left the cab, but headed back into the train itself, and a new driver and secondman boarded the train. At the controls was driver Stanley Turner, and he was joined by Frank Toghill. And although he was no longer in the seat, Atkinson remained in the cab himself with the other two. And with everybody set up and ready to proceed, the train left the station at Stoke, which is 15 miles north of Hickson at 12.13, building up speed for the run south to College Junction, and in turn, the capital. Both vehicles, very different in nature and compilation, were rapidly approaching the same level crossing in the Staffordshire countryside. After leaving the A51, the police escort led the transporter along a small road towards the airfield, Station Road. As they approached level crossing, the police told Groves to wait while one of the constables went ahead to make sure they were in the right place for the airfield and the depot that the Transformer was destined for. The crossing was ahead of both vehicles, and the police car slowly began to drive down towards it, leading the way. The lights at the crossing were unlit, and the barriers upright as this took place. The route that had been planned for the Transformer's journey included three locations where caution was noted. Two were crawling speed over a bridge, and One was a low railway bridge to pass underneath a few miles back. The crossing at Hickson was not on the list of cautions. As it stands, there were some concerns. The West Coast main line had been electrified as part of a modernisation scheme in the 50s, and therefore the line here had a height restriction, with a headroom of 16 foot 6 inches. The transporter was about 6 inches higher than this with the transformer atop, and the policeman informed him there was a slight hump over the crossing. The crew from Winds wasn't actually phased by this restriction, by their experience, most of the time there was a foot or two in excess of the posted number, and their plan was to cross slowly, checking the clearance to the wires as they passed. Immediately before the crossing, Groves reduced the speed to two miles an hour. He had the option to lower the trailer by six inches, but he'd planned to see if it was required before he actually did so. Lowering the load bed could potentially have caused other issues with ground clearance. Wilkins, in the cab on the trailer, climbed up to the roof of that cab and assessed there as being sufficient clearance above before the Transformer reached the overhead line equipment. With this done, he climbed down to the road and started to walk alongside the Juggernaut as it started to traverse the crossing along with two other members of the crew. At the breakneck speed of two miles an hour, the cumbersome vehicle began to lurch over the crossing with the lead tractor creeping over both lines and off the other side. The bulk of the Transformer now straddling the line and the rear bogey of the trailer just about to pass the barrier leading into the crossing. The crossing itself was only a fraction of the length of the Juggernaut and there was still quite a bit of vehicle to get across which is why what happened next was so problematic. The lights of the crossing began to flash, and the alarm bells began to ring. A thousand yards to the north, one Alpha 41 had just activated the treadles and the track circuit, which started the level crossing sequence. This meant there was only a matter of seconds until the train would reach this sleepy crossing in the middle of the countryside. Ilsley, in the rear tractor saw the barrier start to descend onto the transformer and shortly afterwards Groves, who was in front of the lights and couldn't see them, looked to his left and saw something infinitely more concerning. The train. It was clear to him that there was no chance it would stop. Alpha 4-1 was approaching at line speed around 85 miles an hour and if he could see it, he knew that it was a fact. Groves and Ilsley had the option to bail and run. But they didn't, with each of them accelerating to try and clear the crossing in time, a concept infinitely more terrifying for Ilsley in the rear cab. On board the train, Turner tried his own way to avert disaster, and at the point that crossing came into view, and he was confronted with the sight of this 120-ton chunk of metal straddling the track, he threw the brake in, emergency, try and slow the train as much as possible. The tragic truth, though, neither of these actions would be sufficient to prevent what was about to happen from taking place, and at 12.26, at about 75 miles an hour, Alpha 4-1 collided with the Transformer. The leading end of the AL-1 smashed into the rear seven feet of the Transformer, severing the swan net connecting it to the rear bogey, and the force tossed the 120 tonnes to the left and forward of where the train hit it. The impact did, however, crush the leading end of the loco instantly, and the train began to topple from the line, sliding along the track as it began to rip it up underneath the derailing vehicles, and overhead line equipment started to come down around the unravelling mess. The front five coaches were significantly damaged as the train slowed to a rapid stop, piling up around the locomotive whose cab area was now unrecognisable and essentially gone, with the bulkhead door into the equipment space clearly visible from outside and substantial damage to the side body of the loco itself. The coaches themselves had suffered greatly as the energy dissipated. One of them ended up diagonally across the tracks behind the loco, crumpled and broken against the rear cab, roof panels and sidewalls ripped open. In the field, to the right, as they'd been travelling, two further carriages were jackknifed out away from the tracks, one on its side, having rolled more than 90 degrees in the crash, and the other with its bodywork and roof almost entirely separated from the chassis below. A fifth carriage angled back in towards the track behind the two that were pressed up against the locomotive, and between all of these carriages, a diamond of devastation was created, a field of... debris... The remaining carriages of the train, seven of them, lay more or less in line with the first three in various states of derailment, two of which lying against the Transformer itself, which, despite the force of the impact, had only moved around 20 yards or so from the crossing. Testament to the weight of the load, when components of the trailer itself had actually been thrown 40 metres further than the loco came to rest. It only took a matter of seconds, for the train that had been travelling at 85 miles an hour on approach to the crossing to come to a shuddering halt, and in the process it was almost inevitable that lives would have been ended. To limit that number, a fast response was needed to make sure that help was summoned as soon as possible. Train crew were normally that first port of call, but unfortunately, and somewhat expectedly, all three men who had been travelling in the leading cab of the train had been killed likely instantly, such was the speed of the unstoppable train when it impacted the almost immovable transformer. Luckily for those on board though, there were already emergency services on the scene when the collision took place. Though I imagine they were somewhat perturbed by the role they may have played in the incident, the police officers in the escort car immediately radioed news of the incident to the force control room, and as a result, rescue work began swiftly. In less than 20 minutes the first ambulances were arriving at the scene, accompanied by doctors who were ferried in on police and army helicopters, and the fire brigade who arrived on scene two minutes before them. By 1pm, the first of the casualties from the wreckage made their way to hospitals in the area, and by 25-2, to the last of the casualties which the services described as easily accessible, were extricated from the wreckage with the final injured passenger arriving two hours later in hospital. Beyond this, it was down to the grim task of recovering bodies, with the last passengers removed at 16.50 and the bodies of those in the driving cab at 11.30 at night. The toll of the crash was not to be unexpected, considering its violence, and could indeed have been even higher as it was. Eleven people lost their lives, the three railmen from the cab and eight of the passengers who'd been travelling in the train behind them Miraculously nobody from the Hawley's crew was included in the toll answers were required this the automatic half barrier was a new technology which was supposed to be safe enough for our railway but now 11 lives have been lost to the tragic incident in the peaceful staffordshire countryside As far as investigations go, Hickson was going to look a little different to normal. As was the way in the 1960s, HMRI, an abbreviation I should definitely be able to get right first time round, Her Majesty's Rail Inspectorate at the time, would generally unpick the pieces following accidents on the railway. Though this convention brought some challenges in this case, namely around a conflict of interest. Automatic half-barrier crossings were clearly going to come under some scrutiny as part of this investigation. It would be impossible for this not to be the case. With a traditional crossing, controlled by a crossing keeper or signalman who would need to clear signals for the express if the way was actually clear, this incident could not have taken place. And who had a big part to play in the introduction of this brand new technology, the automatic half-barrier? Well, the HMRI, of course, it was their work which had assessed the suitability for introduction on the UK network, their personnel that had gone off to the continent to check it, and it was appropriate therefore that a rarely used provision of law was enacted. Section seven of the Regulation of the Railways Act 1871 allows the Board of Trade to appoint an investigator to direct an inquiry into an accident, something which had only been done once before at this point. Following the 1879 collapse of the Tay Bridge. As a result, Mr. Edward Brian Gibbons QC was appointed as the investigator responsible for the inquiry, and hearings began. First and foremost, witnesses involved in the incident were called, and key to this were the Hauliers that were involved, Robert Wynne and Sons Limited. As Mr. Gibbons QC tells us in the report of the inquiry, the immediate responsibility for the safe movement of the equipage lay with the five members of the transporter crew under the leadership of Mr. B. H. Groves, the driver of the front tractor. It is therefore important to consider both the actions of the crew during the journey and also the adequacy of the training and supervision provided by the management of Robert Wynne & Sons Limited. With this in mind, one of those who found themselves providing evidence to councils in the hearings was unsurprisingly Mr. Groves. Groves had worked for Wins for 20 years, and so his experience and his skills were rightly respected by the rest of the crew, and indeed his employers. He knew what he was doing with this oversized, heavy-duty piece of kit, and it was him that had supervised the lengthening of the trailer in Manchester, the widening of the trailer, and the loading of the transformer at Stafford on the day before the journey. Even the inquiry acknowledges that he certainly knew his vehicle, and in turn, his job. The inquiry made reference to the fact that the circuitous route the vehicle had taken had those three caution messages, three areas that they needed to operate in a certain way for safety, all linked to crossing or travelling or crossing bridges or travelling underneath bridges. Yet the level crossing which they had to pass was not on this list, and why was that? Neither Groves nor any of his crew had been to Hickson before, and the route that was planned for them and which had been approved did not mention a level crossing. So a look at the paperwork alone wouldn't include any of the staff into the fact it existed. The notification of movement which Wins had submitted included a step-by-step road to junction and then the next junction. And the only reference to the area where the crossing was, was a line at the end of the route which stated... Western to Junction, Class 3 Road, approximately two miles past Hickson, left turn, Class 3 Road, turn left, access road to English Electrics, Works and Destination. No reference to even a railway line, or its overhead wires, no caution about the headroom restrictions or any special requirements to follow on this final part of the route. This wouldn't have excused Groves and his crew from dealing with it appropriately once they came across it but it would have been nice to see it in that guide. In any case, it's a bit of a moot point, because Groves did know it was there. Prior to the journey, a Mr Preston from the English Electric Company had told him about it, and indeed, Preston was also called to face the inquiry. He was familiar with the Hickson Crossing, and the fact that it was an automatic crossing. He used to pass it almost once a week, and he was aware that a bus provided for his company's employees used to travel along that road every day. The issue here, however, is that he had never given any consideration to the brisk operation of the barriers. He wasn't aware of the issue, and the fact that there was only 24 seconds between the train striking in, hitting that first treadle, and reaching the crossing. Before setting out with his lord on the 6th of January, Groves told Preston that he had never been to Hickson Depot and asked the way. He was told that after turning off the A51, he should go over the level crossing and into the depot. Preston, in evidence, agreed that he merely mentioned it as a landmark. He didn't warn Groves that it was an automatic crossing, nor that there was overhead electric wires. It was just, as part of a sentence, over the crossing on your left. Which brings us back, neatly-ish, to the evidence that Groves gave. And this is an extract from the questioning which Mr. Philip Owen QC subjected him to. What I want to try and establish is how far before you got to the crossing did you realise that it was one of these new type of automatic uncontrolled crossings? When I saw the sign saying stop. As far back as that? Yes, sir. And if I understand your evidence correctly, you say the reason you did not stop at all was twofold. Firstly, because the police had gone over it, is that right? That is correct. And secondly, because you thought if the crossing was obstructed by somehow the engine driver would be notified or informed or told by some device. That is correct. And do you know what? This is an assumption which I could possibly get behind, considering the previous status quo status quo with level crossings. Remember, historically the signals would only be cleared following a successfully closed off-roadway with no risk to trains. This is a different situation. And that assumption was firmly challenged by the next question. Did it occur to you that if you actually went on to this crossing without stopping and the train was very close at hand, it would not matter whether the engine driver knew or not, because he could not do a thing about it? Grove's answer? No, sir. I'm afraid it did not. The other lines of questioning which Grove experienced honed in on his understanding of automatic crossings, namely to confirm that he had heard of them, but it highlighted the fact that he only knew that they were half barrier and that the lights flashed before the barriers came down. He'd never actually driven over one before. And as he said, his only realised he'd encountered his first when he got to Hickson. He remained firm in his unfortunately inaccurate prior belief that a mechanism must exist which would prevent the train from reaching the crossing while he was on it. The other possible issue here is that he'd taken the fact that the police car had crossed the line as some sort of permission, implicit or otherwise, for him to continue over. Their role wasn't really to guide or instruct the convoy, though it was merely to assist them in the management of other traffic. The inquiry tells us that, Although Hawley has agreed that in practice the cooperation between heavy vehicle drivers and police escorts is on the basis of teamwork, they have shown a misunderstanding of the duties of the police. They regard them as pilots, assuming control of a ship, rather than as shepherds. Police forces are under no statutory duty to provide escorts for abnormal vehicles, but do so as part of their task of controlling traffic in their districts. Gibbons writes within the report of his opinions of Groves and his testimony, I have been very troubled about Mr. Groves' responsibility for producing a huge vehicle in the path of an express train and his general attitude to the unfamiliar type of level crossing which he knew was unattended and was operated by an approaching train. He impressed me as an honest witness, doing his best to tell me the truth out of a confusion of mind due, at least partly, to a natural desire to justify his actions brought to himself and to the court. I am not sure that he has told me all that he ever knew about the working of automatic crossings, and I do not accept that he really believed the police escort had assured him of a safe passage. As a long-experienced driver of heavy haulage, he knew the police were concerned principally with clearing oncoming road traffic. It wasn't just the driver at Wins that was scrutinised, though, however, for Groves seemed to have very little knowledge of the dangers of an automatic crossing. The company itself should have been abundantly aware of them, because of an incident which had taken place over a year earlier. The date was the 8th of November 1966, and the place? Lemster. A place historically, horrifically mispronounced by me on this podcast as Leominster. Isn't the English language fun? In any case, another wind's lorry found itself on approach to yet another automatic level crossing, one that had been very recently installed. In fact, a small ramp of about four inches dropped down on one side of the crossing, because the road hadn't been finished yet, and that was the side opposite to where the lorry was approaching from. This wasn't a big old tractor-trailer push-pull arrangement like we saw at Hickson, it was a normal-ish lorry with a 15-ton crane on a low-loader trailer. James Horton, the driver, approached the crossing at about 5 miles an hour, but when the lorry dropped down the other side, the trailer grounded and it came to an abrupt halt. Helpfully, and in language that has recently become something of an internet meme in recent years, a nearby railwayman called out to Horton, You can't park there. Horton's response was, Park indeed. I am grounded on the crossing. Levity aside, the railwayman, who I believe was a the signaler, then shared a concerning piece of information, that a train was due imminently and that the crossings, lights, and bells would signify the train's arrival in a matter of seconds. And what's worse, the line here was a 90 mile an hour piece of track. Horton, who was now out of his cab and talking to the signaler, advised the signaler that he would need to stop trains and that an hour or so would be required to jack the load up and get it moving. But then, at that moment, the sequence of lights and bells started. Horton reacted in a way which must have just been instinctive and demonstrates exceptional bravery, and he climbed back into the cab of the lorry, violently accelerated the engine and dropped the clutch in hard. Somehow, the lorry lurched forwards and off the crossing, with the express passing close behind it. And surely if Wynn and Sons had heard of this incident, they would have made everyone in the business fully aware of the risks. Not entirely the case. Hortons absolutely had informed the bosses of the incident, and Wynne's did actually do something about it. They wrote a letter to British Railways, which described the incident, and ended with the line, which I can not possibly do anything but agree with, There is no need for us to enlarge on the disaster which could have occurred at Lempster on the 8th of November had not our driver, with what we consider considerable bravery, succeeded in removing his vehicle. We shall be glad to have your comments in due course. And as Gibbons tells us, that letter clearly indicated the state of the company's knowledge of the danger of these crossings as far back as November 1966. It is Plain that they knew that the lights and barriers were actuated by the train, and that thereafter there was no means of warning the train driver, or of stopping the train, and that the train itself arrived on the crossing only a few seconds after actuating the mechanism. They also knew that a transporter such as passed along Station Road Hickson could not clear the crossing safely in such a short space of time, should a train approach. With this knowledge in mind, it seems ridiculous that Wins hadn't formally let their drivers know about the risk of these crossings. In fact, it's an incredibly frustrating oversight, especially from a personal perspective, working in an industry which places such an importance on near misses and then on circulating the lessons learned from them. Of course, with all of this in mind, blame for the accident ended up being Fairly chiefly laid at the doors of the Holiers, who in a remarkable display of bolting the stable door after the horse had gone, issued a circular following the accident at Hickson, and it read Driver to note, before crossing any automatic controlled railway crossing, he must ensure that the police escort or himself contact the signal box to obtain permission to cross. A line used too many times on this podcast. Too little, too late. But it does raise an interesting point. If the driver is meant to cr- contact the signaler before he crosses the line at an unmanned automatic crossing with no signaller to speak to, how are they meant to do that? Well, incorporated in the pivot post of each half-barrier erected since 1965 is a telephone connected directly to the monitoring signal box and intended for use by the public. They can use them to contact the signaler and ask whether it's safe or not to cross if there's any concern. In fact, when crossing with a larger abnormal load, drivers were actually instructed to do this, which begs another question, where could one find this instruction? Nearby to each of the automatic crossing barriers is a sign which is referred to in the inquiry as the emergency notice, which proclaimed, in black lettering on a white background, in emergency or before crossing with exceptional or heavy loads or cattle, phone signalmen. And in the corresponding box, signalers were given instructions as to how to respond to these queries. So with this sign being in existence, why didn't either the police officers escorting the load or Groves and his crew Follow that instruction. Difficult to do it. If they didn't see it. Drivers of vehicles approaching the crossing from the A51. Would first meet the traffic sign. Which indicated a crossing 173 yards. Before they reached the railway. And then a little bit further on. Was the standard sign indicating the danger of overhead cables. And stating that the headroom was 16 foot 6 inches. Both road signs. Recognisably road signs. Both pointing out a hazard. Neither of them mentioned the need to contact the signaller. Finally, at the crossing itself were the railway notices. So with the emergency notice on the near side of the road behind a white painted fence, not on the roadway itself, but on property adjacent belonging to the British Railway's board. Seven feet back from the road and at an angle of about 20 or 30 degrees to the road. And this is concerning And the year prior Um, a member of staff, the divisional operating superintendent at Stoke-on-Trent had paid a routine visit to the Hickson Crossing. And he was obviously worried by the position of the board because on the evening of the 6th of January, he tried by hand to see whether it could be turned, but it didn't move. case following instance. Recommendations are often forthcoming, and this wasn't any different at Hickson. The use of the AHB crossings was not actually condemned by the inquiry. All of the reasons that they were implemented still existed, and we've seen by more recent history that they can be done fairly safely. Gibbons said at the head of his recommendations, the Accessors and I have come to the conclusion that level crossings protected by automatic half-barriers are a valuable answer to the needs of modern transport and that they are reasonably safe, but we believe that their safety can be much improved by certain modifications. Fully closed off crossings with interlocked signals would be absolutely the safest way to go forward, but there's got to be a balance that's struck between full protection for the automatic crossings with presence detectors allied with railway signals or a lesser degree of protection that would minimize but not eliminate all of the risks. The inquiry did go on to say that although full protection with complete closure of the crossing would eliminate risks as so far as was humanly possible, there would be a great cost in money and in the complexity of the alterations to the signalling system. So for the most part, the benefit of these conversions would just cease and... um, if that was the case, all the benefits to road traffic would be lost because they're much more slow trains than fast trains and the average time of closing the road would be the same as in manned crossings. There really is a cost benefit analysis required here. The first real recommendation was an increase in the cycle times, um, that the, the time cycle should be extended to 32 seconds before the arrival of the fastest train. So a warning period of eight, barriers come down over eight and then that final phase is 16 seconds or so twice as long. One of the members on the panel actually suggested that the flashing red lights at the crossing should be replaced with a standard style traffic light, universally recognised and understood by everyone on the roads as to what those instructions were meant to be. But Gibbons did take a different view. Apart from them being an internationally recognized sign for a level crossing, they also gave the public a unmistakable indication that the crossing is not an ordinary road intersection. There's a different risk. And allows for legislation to actually treat these as an ultimate you must stop, regardless of the the reason you might go through a red light if it was a normal traffic light. He did, however, recommend the addition of an amber aspect, which would give a warning to traffic five seconds before the beginning of the light cycle, sort of a pre-warning, and you will see them now at level crossings. Additionally, there was a suggestion that the emergency notice should actually consist of a large notice erected on the approach to the crossing requiring large and slow vehicles to telephone. One that's actually noticeable but more specifically is a genuine recognized actual road sign an authorized traffic sign and not just a railway notice that someone on the road might feel inclined not to look at because they feel it doesn't apply to them should be on the approach to the crossing on the roadside along with any other signs related to the crossing and in addition the rear of the report also includes some suggestions of what these should look like and one of the suggested designs is now very familiar. Large, white, bold text on a blue background, featuring the words, drivers of large or slow vehicles must phone before crossing. And if you've ever driven over a level crossing, you've probably seen that. In addition to the inclusion of additional signage, education was also heavily featured in the recommendations, with an onus placed on how British Rail British Railways at the time, should inform those of the risks following a new installation and how the highway code should better reflect the risks posed by this new style of crossing, to make people appreciate the fact that the train could only ever be a few seconds away. In closing out the inquiry report into Hickson, Gibbons attributes criticism where it's due, and in all fairness, very few of the players escape the scrutiny. The immediate cause attributed is of course, somewhat as expected, that a driver of a huge transporter vehicle, 148 feet long, carrying a load of 120 tons, failed to comply with a notice on the approach road, directing him to telephone the signalman before attempting to cross, and drove the vehicle across the railway at two miles an hour when the arrival of an express passenger train was imminent. I'm not going to labour the faults laid at Groves' feet in the subsequent paragraphs, as I think we've covered that already, but also under fire is an ignorance of the workings of automatic crossings by the two officers from the escort vehicle. And it actually isn't so much a criticism of them as the fact that the Chief Constable and the Senior Officers of the Staffordshire Police failed to instruct them about the workings, and especially of the need for drivers to use the telephone, because... They, themselves, were ignorant of those matters. They'd failed to consider the possible hazards presented by automatic crossings already in the county, and they hadn't read, with care, the explanation contained within the note that was sent to them by British Railways. There were faults as well for British Railways themselves, contributing to the accident, that firstly, they failed to, um, when they responded to the Winds letter about Lemster, They didn't inform the haulier of the critical need for heavy transport to form the signal. They didn't impart that knowledge. In fact, the report has their response and it's, the tone isn't great. Um, There was an opportunity there to really firmly educate on a real risk, a narrowly avoided accident that could have been used to prevent this very real one. They actually undertook... Uh, local publicity campaigns when they were opening up these barriers as well. These, these level customs, when they were installed, they, they wrote things out to people in the nearby area, they published leaflets, but they didn't feel the need to send any information directly to heavy haulage contractors. And there weren't exactly many firms in the country that were undertaking this kind of work. It's very specialized and winds and Sons were one of the big players it would have taken very little effort to target those businesses directly. Also taking fire was the Ministry of Transport because they had failed to consider that additional precautions were needed for slow moving vehicles. And they'd made a policy decision that said that level crossings weren't required to be included in the special traffic orders, such as what winds had received before their journeys. Ultimately, One of the final paragraphs of the report does offer a little vindication for those who'd been on the ground on the day of the crash, stating, The origin of the accident was in the failures of officers of both the Ministry of of Transport and British Railways in collaboration to appreciate the measures necessary to deal with a hazard of which they were aware. Improvements did follow the accident at hintz and automatic half barrier crossings (AHBCs) the they were safer as a result though they are safe we have them now they're a very very prevalent type of level crossing and we're not hearing of massive accidents on them all the time but the rate of installation did slow following the incident with over well there was over 200 of them in at the time of the accident at Hickson but there was only 27 that were installed and commissioned in the 10 years following last thing for us to discuss then before we close this episode out improvements and changes to level crossings would continue in the future new types would be developed and brought in but surely following the lessons learned here this would be done far more carefully and without introducing risk to vehicles and members of the public who found that their journeys took them to a point where road and rail met this is this podcast, and you've, you've heard my rhetorical questions before, so I think you know where this is going. It wasn't always the case, because in 1977, the Railway Inspectorate once again went on a jolly to mainland Europe, and retained, safe in the mindset, that they could move to relax the requirements around automatic crossings, and they brought with them another novel concept from the mainland. Those of you who have listened for a while will have heard the letters A-O-C-R before, and you'll also recognise name Lockington. If removing the full width gates and replacing them with half barriers was a shock to the country's collective system, then the AOCRs were even more so. These are automatic open crossings remotely monitored. The open in there means there are no barriers at all. When a train approached, warning lights at the crossing flash, the ubiquitous yawed alarm, the sound we all recognise from lower crossings, would sound, and around 30 seconds later, the train would just pass through the crossing. The absence of barriers in the sequence is what made them so different from the vast majority of what we've seen before, and even from the AHBs, which had come before them. The design allowed for an open crossing with no physical barrier, despite the fact that they could be placed on lines that were up to 75 miles an hour. And, as with the AHB, these crossings weren't interlocked with signals. On the 26th of July, 1986, a passenger train departed Bridlington heading for Hull, and it was destined to cross over one of these fairly new AOCR crossings. 64 passengers and crew on board, including contented families, heading back after a week at the coast. Young men going into the city to spend their earnings, and even a young couple hoping to exchange their one-year-old's birthday money for something nice. As the train continued southbound, it approached the crossing at Lockington at a speed of around 60 miles an hour. When it was metres away, a flash of blue shot out from the right-hand side. A van had entered the crossing. Avoiding a collision was impossible. The left-hand buffer of the train struck the side nearest to the van, ripped the van into five pieces and derailed the train. The immediate result of Lockington, which I actually wrote about back in 2021 for an issue of Rail magazine, just a little plug if you happen to have a 2021 issue of Rail lying around to go and read that, The immediate result though was the death of eight passengers and the 11-year-old who had been traveling in the passenger seat of the van. But the longer term was a review into the use of the new technology. And the findings from that review, let's just say that most of the AOCRs were then turned into AHBs. And actually, if you wanted to go and see this very unusual and strange type of crossing, your options are very limited. There's only one example of an AOCR that can be found now, and that's on the remote and far less frequently traveled Aberdeen to Inverness line. So what became of the level crossing at Hickson on the busy West Coast Main Line? Well, in 2002, Network Rail spent two million pounds to make the safest improvement possible to it. They closed it and they built a bridge. The memory of this incident, however, won't disappear with the crossing gone. There's a memorial to those who lost their lives that can be found in the village churchyard. And even as recently as in August 2021, Cross Country named one of their Voyager units, Hickson, to commemorate the incident. My final thought then for today. Progress is important for the railway. Modernisation is key to that. And yes, saving costs in a never increasingly expensive world has got to play a part. But it should never be at the expense of safety. Never. Lockington and Hickson before it are prime examples of exactly what happens when full and complete consideration is not given to the weakest part of introducing a new system. How well the protections put in place survive their first interaction with the people who need to use it. thank you for joining me for yet another episode of signals to danger come and find me on social media at, at signals to danger pretty much everywhere or drop me an email at daniel.fox at don't forget we have got some merchandise on sale the links on our social posts and again that really big thank you to everyone who supports us on patreon where you can listen for free as you can hear but you can listen ad free <laughs> If you're interested in supporting the podcast, check out the link on the support page of our website, signals2danger.com. And with all of that said, until the next episode, travel safe.